This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Victor Davis Hanson. It's a great privilege to welcome Victor Davis Hanson from Stanford to the program again. Uh, His clarity of thought, his understanding, uh, second to none in terms of the great challenges before Western society in general and America in particular are at the moment. Uh, And excitingly, he has another book coming up, uh, The End of Everything, How Wars Descend into Annihilation. Yes, it's uh, coming out May 7th. And it, uh, it looks at four historical examples where war, in a very aberrant fashion, because it's very rare, not only did the defeated lose the war, in the case of Thebes, Carthage, uh, the Aztecs at Tenochtitlan and Constantinople, but their entire culture was wiped out as a result. And, uh, and then the epilogue, I have a long epilogue, trying to speculate or analyze if this is still possible in a modern world. Where the, way, where the methodology of destruction is much more enhanced than mu- the muscular labor of the past. So I don't think that fear has left us yet. Well, we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, we face, I think, an extraordinarily challenging year. And I'd just like to begin with a quote from the former US Defense Secretary, Robert Gates, who I think is very deeply respected. As I recall, he was... Uh, employed under a Republican administration and kept on by a Democrat administration. And he's just uh, been quoted in Foreign Affairs as having said, and I quote, the United States, and that would, I think, include its allies, now confronts graver threats to its security than it has in decades, perhaps ever. Never before has it faced four allied antagonists at the same time. Russia, China, North Korea and Iran, whose collective nuclear arsenal could within a few years be nearly double the size of its own. And then he goes on, the problem, however, is that at the very moment that events demand a strong and coherent response from the United States, the country cannot provide one. However, did we reach the point where somebody of that standing can say that America cannot mount a coherent response? Well, I don't know why he picked this particular occasion to comment, but he is famous, or depending on your political persuasion, infamous for a very another very famous quote, and that was that Joe Biden has been wrong, he said, on every major policy. 
policy decision, I think, of the last 30 years. So I think he's talking in particular about the directionalist, directionless uh, of the Biden administration. What I mean by that is when Jake Sullivan came in, he said that his most uh, secure portfolio, or at least the portfolio that gave him the least worry, was the Middle East. And that was because the Houthis were on a terrorist watch list. We'd got out of the Iran deal. They were embargoed $90 billion in lost revenue. We had cut off Hamas, not giving them any money. And uh, there was not a Russian-Iranian nexus, much less a Russian-China nexus. And then it all blew up. And what do I mean by that? We had the Afghanistan uh, humiliating withdrawal. We had the Chinese buy balloon. We had the Russians shooting down a drone in international space. We had, in addition to that, uh, we had the Houthis basically cutting off commerce in the Red Sea. And all of that was a, a result of deliberate U.S. policy based on flawed principles that our magnanimity would be interpreted uh, such and would be reciprocated in kind, and it didn't happen. And we lost the, the idea of deterrence. And that was just a superficial manifestation, John. There, that was either caused by a lack of presidential authoritas or it was because of deeper structural uh, problems within the United States long term that just happened to pop out or occasion when we had a weak leader. And by that, I mean, we were $35 trillion in debt now. Our supply chains are disrupted. We cannot replace our uh, ship-to-shore missiles. Our javelins are seven years uh, backlog. We have enormous problems in our big cities with blue, uh, blue cities, with people fleeing them to red states. We have a crime epidemic. We have, I've never seen such racial animosity. We, for a while, deliberately abrogated our number one uh, slot as the world's greatest oil and natural gas. We're trying to correct that producer in the world. And most egregiously, we the border in the past had been porous at times, but it's non-existent. Eight million people have flowed across. So I guess all of these things are long-term, and they came to a fore, though, uh, and they were not corrected, but they were fueled by the Biden administration. And maybe Mr. Gates is remarking about that. I don't know. But he's been very critical of the leadership ability of Joe Biden in the past. Well, before we come to this, this you know, it's been a presidential election year and what have you, um, the last time uh, you and I spoke, you commented that you thought the appalling rise and, and sudden visibility of ugly anti-Semitism following um, October 7 and Hamas's butchery of uh, large numbers of Israeli people would galvanise the American people. Perhaps it was the wake-up moment. It would jolt them into saying we've had enough of this ridiculous uh, sort of uh, wokeism, for want of a better word. We want something better. Do you see any evidence of that unfolding some months on? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, and I can give you various criteria that might reflect that. The, we had a poll yesterday that 86% of the people did not have confidence in the cognitive ability of Joe Biden. It was 73% the week before. No one in our major cities, and these are blue cities with far left mayors in, in states that have far left governors, are calling for defunding of the police. 
They're, in fact, begging officers with high incentives to come back and restore deterrence. No one on the left that opened the border is saying, we want more people to come in. They're scrambling now for a bipartisan veneer that will give them some, I don't know, protection from what they feel is coming. And what is coming is an, uh, an anger or wrath in the 2024 elections. I don't know what the outcome will be, but in the case of Donald Trump, he's staged at this point the most remarkable political comeback since Richard Nixon said in 1962, the left doesn't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. And then in 68, he won the presidency. Or Ronald Reagan was written off in 1980. They said the man had run for presidency twice. He was 69 years old. He couldn't be the, he was too far right. And he was president for the ensuing eight years. What I'm getting at, we have talked after the January 6th debacle and Donald Trump's ratings or, or approval were way down. He was facing uh, an impeachment, which was successful. And then he was tried as a private citizen for the first time, which was not. He's been the subject of four indictments, a civil suit. He's trying to get his name off the ballot. And yet here we are where he is the leading Republican candidate after eliminating 11 other candidates in the primary, only, you know, only two, uh, three, four primaries. And he looks like he's going to crush Nikki Haley in her home state. And he's running not just two to four points ahead of Joe Biden, the incumbent president, which who has enormous advantages that comes with incumbency. But more importantly, when you look at the states that will decide the election, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, maybe Ohio, he's ahead in all of them. And so that is a reflection not of all of a sudden people, you know, loving Donald Trump, but they're desperate for a change because they feel that financially, culturally, economically, politically, socially, the United States is not sustainable anymore. And if we continue in this trajectory, we're going to face not just a loss of our standard of living, but our very survival. It's not sustainable what we're doing. And everybody seems to have concluded that. Well, let's explore a bit then perhaps what the Democrats might do and what the Republicans might do in the face of this. If we could come to the Democrats first, I mean, one takes it that there are many smart people there and they'd be looking at those poll numbers you just thought. Surely they're largely driven by... Forgive me if I've got this wrong, but the impression we have in Australia is that effectively you've got a situation where uh, it's been determined that the president is not cognitively strong enough and fit enough to face a trial uh, over um, legal matters, yet apparently he's still cognitively strong enough to be president. How does that work? And surely... Is that dilemma well, right? I mean, how does that play out in the psyche of the American people? And how do the Democrats respond? We, in our system of government, we don't have a former, a, a formal apparatus to remove a president for cognitive inability. We have something called the 25th Amendment, but by design, it avoids a partisan uh, gambit. It says that the opposition party will have no initial role in it. It has to be done by a poll of the cabinet of the same party as the president in most cases. Then it only then is it referred to Congress in which there'll be a debate about it. And that's not going to happen. 
and it's uh, it's never happened, and it will never happen because of the design of the law. And so usually what happens when we've had this before, and we've had one case with Woodrow Wilson for nine months was, as you know, incapacitated, it's kept secret, and the palace guard, so to speak, know something that we don't, and they carry on until the next election. It's very hard in the modern era with communication and the internet and cell phones to hide the dis the debility. And the problem the Democrats have is they don't have a problem with getting rid of Joe Biden. In fact, as we're speaking, they're, they're thinking of every conceivable mechanism to do that. But they see that that removal will endanger their hold on power in the Senate, in state and local races. So they want that incumbent Democratic president, the head of the ticket, so they can keep the Senate and perhaps get back the House. And yet they know that he's in the next 10 months, it's, it's a 50-50 situation whether he's going to be able to continue. So what do they do? They need a Democratic viable candidate. He's not viable, and yet he's better than the alternative. And what is the alternative is Kamala Harris, someone who explicitly was recommended on the basis of her gender and her race. That was not controversial. That was just a fact. And she has not risen to the task. She's not ready to serve. And that's not coming from me or you or anybody. It's what the Democratic Party is terrified about, because young, vigorous woman is polling just about where Joe Biden is, 33 or 34 percent. So how do they cut that Gordian knot? They have to somehow get a viable, muscular, young woman or man candidate, but they have to do so with basically quite rudely and abruptly getting rid of a black woman who has served the president loyally for four years. And that will be the drama in the convention this summer. I don't know how they're going to do it. Right now, they're focused on can they get Joe Biden down to a 70-hour week, 72-hour week, no press conferences, no interviews, and that means giving up, you know, just priceless airtime like the Super Bowl interview, and not to repeat that disaster he had after the rep report the day before of Robert Hur that night, Thursday night, or even his spokesman's disastrous press conference. So they're in a dilemma. And all they're doing now is they're getting the palace uh, coterie to say that he's perfectly fine. This is ageist. It's mean to say anything else. Everybody's impressed by his recall, his photographic memory. And Donald Trump uh, will kill women by taking abortion away. And He's an insurrectionist, and he's a racist, and he is cognitively impaired, too. And that's where we are in America. I note uh, the New York Post, uh, which I wouldn't have thought was terribly friendly to uh, Mr. Trump, uh, reports that um, the American people, the research is showing at the moment, believe that the current president uh, suffers from all of the issues we've just been talking about, uh, that he's too old, in a nutshell. Trump is not very much younger, and actually he makes a lot of slips as well, but they're perceived completely differently. That you could actually uh, you know, raise real questions about both men's age and sharpness, but that's not the way it's seen by Americans. Well, 
the proof of the pudding is always in the eating. So yesterday, Donald Trump, as he as his custom, he'll get up in front of a audience. He will have a teleprompted script like Biden had. He will follow it, but ad lib constantly, and then he'll go off. But he will stand on his feet for an hour and a half and speak. And sometimes the results can be very controversial. About his controversial, like he said about NATO, trolling NATO, or trying to get sort of a threat to NATO to beef up their, you know, their arms and brag about what he did in a very bizarre way. But the point I'm making is no one says that, and as they do a Biden, he doesn't know where to stand. He calls, once in a while he may confuse two politicians, but he doesn't do it every time. He does, it's a rare occasion that deserves media scrutiny. But Joe Biden has so acculturated people, they just say, he doesn't know where he is. And at the press conference, it was designed to show people that he was in control of the facts. He suggested that the president of Egypt was actually the president of Mexico, that the corridor of Gaza into Egypt was, I guess he was trying to relate it somehow to the influx coming into the United States in a confused manner. He didn't know, he mentioned the rosary. He denied that he had, uh, confuse the dates, the tragic dates of the death of his son. But of course, all of that is on a record. So that prompted the case. If all these spokesmen say this is despicable, it didn't happen, all you have to do is, is allow the special counsel to release the transcript. I shouldn't say the transcript. They have done that, but the audio. And you can hear Joe Biden in his own words. And of course, they don't want to do that. And uh, they're in a walk in a hard place getting back to Mr. Hur's report because if you read the 350 plus pages, it is a damning portrait of a senator, a vice president, a private citizen who knew that he had violated the law for over 30 years. And on contrary to what his spokesman have said, that he was civically inclined the moment he knew, he didn't do anything about these classified documents, and he couldn't plead ignorance because in 2017, even at that late date, he, he remarked to his ghostwriter that he had classified documents in his possession, and he waited five years to tell anybody. And of course, the, the ghostwriter erased that tape, and it was only found out by forensics. But my point is, the only reason we know anything about Joe Biden's uh, legal exposure, and which prompted that disastrous press conference, was on November 2nd, his attorneys found out about this. And how did they find out? Were they looking? No. They had, they had discussed appointing a special counsel, and that, in fact, would be appointed on November 18th. So the scenario obviously was, we're just about to get Donald Trump, we're going to get a special prosecutor, and oh my God, we better check before we announce it if we have the same exposure because it might leak out. And they asked Biden and they asked his team. They said, yes, we do. So they got it out for the first time and then they packaged it as if he was following the law in a way that Donald Trump wasn't. And that is, everybody understands that in the United States. And almost everything that they have editorialized about the special counsel is false. Uh, the locations were multiple. The garage, if you take a look at the special counsel's photograph within the report, it's a mess. It looks like somebody's uh, swap meet sale. 
And of course, he didn't have prerogative as a senator, a vice president, or a private citizen, as does a president, to declassify documents. So they're stuck with this idea that the prosecutor, the first paragraph, as you remember, John says that it's the Department of Justice policy not to indict a sitting president. So what they do is they say, here is the damning evidence, but we can't indict him. But it's not just because it's not the policy of this the Justice Department to indict him. It's because he's non-compos mentes. And then they give you several examples of a habitual problem of memory loss, mischaracterization, misidentification. And that meant for the teen Biden, they were in a, a rock and a hard place. So they, they variate, they gyrate. One day it is, how dare the special counsel say that the president of the United States is crazy or impaired and not fit? by not fit to stand trial, therefore he wouldn't be fit to obviously be president. The next day it is, look at the special counsel report, read it very carefully. It says he will not indict the president. It's a clean bill of health. And so they have a choice, a Faustian bargain between saying the president is innocent of criminality, but he's not fit to serve, or he's fit to serve, but he should have been indicted. Two questions arise out of that. The first is, it, 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 you can't help thinking the American justice system itself is being weaponized, not just against Trump, but more broadly as part of American it political is. life. And, and the second thing that comes out of it is, I've met a lot of very smart Americans, <laughs> and surely, I mean, all the polling suggests they can see they're, they're, they're being completely misled. They're not convinced by any of this. No, they're not. And they're looking at, Whatever one thinks of Donald Trump, if you look at the indictments, they're falling apart as we speak. Jack Smith, now the federal prosecutor, we were told had the strongest case. How is he going to say that Donald Trump put them in an insecure, unsecured place when he looks at the Biden garage and the Biden home? How is he going to say that Donald Trump should have notified uh the archivist he had these when Joe Biden did not. How is he going to say that uh, Trump had no ability to declassify them when he did and Joe Biden never did until he was president, which was post facto. When you look at Fannie Willis, they were we were told that he made an, a phone call at me as if I was running against you, John. And I said, I called the register and said, I know I beat John. There has to be 10,000, 12,000 votes. Can you just find them, see if they're there? That's not election. That's a freedom of speech expression. But that prosecutor now, who ran on the platform to indict Donald Trump, has lied under oath and said that she was not romantically involved with a prosecutor that she picked who had never tried a felony, had never tried a criminal case, and was making over double, according to her uh, receipts, of what all the other prosecutors who had tried felonies and had been uh, had criminal and then criminal experience. And then, of course, there was six hundred and fifty thousand dollars that were billed to him. We know he met with the White House counsel and we know they went on junkets and they lied about the entire thing. That case is imploding. Alvin Bragg is trying to say that a non-disclosure agreement of an embarrassing tryst, if it did take place, is somehow a campaign violation. Barack Obama in 2012 paid $375,000 for campaign 
violations, which all were considered a civil matter. And finally, Alvin Bragg is charging Donald Trump with fraud by uh, exaggerating the value of Mar-a-Lago in a way that allowed him to get a loan. The banks that gave him the loans with using, who had much more sophisticated auditors than Alvin Bragg were very happy with the loans. Donald Trump paid them timely. They made millions of dollars in interest profits. They had no complaint. There was no victim. And people who look at Mar-a-Lago in today's real estate suggest that maybe it had been undervalued. And that's where we are with this legal exposure. And I think it's so weaponized and politicized that I think the American people won't stand for it. And they're already falling apart. The sheer corruption involved uh, with all these blue state, big city indictments with liberal prosecutors and liberal judges and liberal jury pools. And it's a, a, a form of lawfare which comes on top of Russian collusion, Russian disinformation, and trying to remove Trump from the ballot, which blew up. It will blow up with the Supreme Court rule. So, assuming that there are clever people in the Democrat political uh, firmament, why is it that they don't understand that weaponizing the justice system simply builds an even deeper view amongst many Americans that the elites are dismissive of them, that the cancer is so bad, I think to use a term that you have, that you've got to go for a radical chemotherapy in a Donald Trump because it's so serious that you've really got to go for, as the old saying had, had it, uh, the doctor, big time. Why can't they see that all the things you've talked about, the dishonesty, the weaponization of it, the refusal to front up to real issues, actually plays right into the hands of their political opponents in ways that are self-defeating? They, they can't see that because they won. They got caught by surprise in 2016 when he was supposed to have lost the popular vote anywhere by eight to 10 points and have election uh, blowout in the electoral college. And they got surprised. And when they looked at his governance, it was the most effective governance, whether you like him or not, in 50 years. And they were furious because he was, they felt, on doing the progressive project. So they said in 2020, we're never going to let this happen again. And they won. I mean, 70% of the American population in most key states did not vote on election day. That had never happened. And yet the rejection rate went from the typical 4 to 5% of mail-in and unauthenticated ballots to about 0.3 by a magnitude. So they looked at this and said, we stopped him. And it doesn't matter how we did it. And we ameliorated the damage that could have been done had we not cooked up the Russian collusion, had we not impeached him twice, had we not brought in the laptop and said it was a product of disinformation right before the election. And Molly Ball, the, the liberal journalist that wrote for Time in February of, two, of 2021, outlined the entire, she called it, not me, she called it a cabal and a conspiracy. Mark Zuckerberg, to take one example, infused $419 million to absorb the work of registrars and key precincts. So what I'm getting at, John, is when they look at it, they said Donald Trump is a threat to the Western postmodern world, the global world village, and we stopped him. And we did it with heroic measures, and we're going to do it again. 
and maybe the means uh, should uh, not be justified by the ends, but these are noble ends, and therefore they should be, and we're going to do it again. And that's how the and these people are very explicit about it. When they they have never apologized for the Christopher Steele hoax, the fifty one former intelligence authorities have never apologized that right before a debate and just two weeks before an election, they told the American people that everything that Donald Trump said about the Biden family that came out of the laptop was a lie and it was cooked up on his behalf in Moscow. They they don't feel there's Andrew McCabe, the FBI director, four times he lied under federal. He's never apologized. James Comey pled amnesia 245 times under oath to a congressional committee. Never. They don't think they have to. And they feel that Donald Trump was not part of the Clinton, Bush, Romney, Obama, uh, McCain, Obama, that nexus of the bipartisan political dynamic in America, that he was completely without experience, said things that you're not supposed to say, talked in a way, a fashion that was beyond the pale, and, and they felt that they had the right to destroy him. And they did not like his supporters. These were the losers of globalization. We've talked about that before. And so yeah. they feel feel they're going to do it again. And they feel that they have control of the institutions. They feel, well, they have the people. The conservatives have the people. There's no doubt about that. The majority of Americans are conservative, and they're getting more conservative, especially uh, so-called liberal minorities who are transforming into conservatives. But we have the institutions. We have the media. We have the corporate boardroom. We have Silicon Valley. We have entertainment, foundations, eight K through twelve, academia, uh, professional sports. We control the means of communication and knowledge retrieval, and we can thwart the the majority. And that's what they do by changing ballot laws or trying to get rid of the electoral college or Senate Senate filibuster or whatever the institution is that's not conducive to the agenda at hand, they feel they have institutional power to, to change and transform America. Which seems bound as an approach to uh, simply result in more, more heartache, more damage, more polarization than uh, people reaching for ever more severe, if I can put it this way, chemotherapy. You, you mentioned then Americans are conservative, becoming more conservative, particularly some who have been liberal. Uh, I, I just can't help asking, what about young Americans? You know, the, we I see this a, collapse in patriotism amongst young Americans. Is that being, is that big starting I to? I don't know if it's patri patriotism, but the latest poll, two or we've had two recent polls of people under thirty, and uh, it was shocking to me that the majority are polling for Trump over Biden. And we know that older, elderly people, elderly my my age group, the baby boomers are, but uh, people thought. You know, we all make fun of Generation X, Y, Z, but when you probe deeply why there's this dissatisfaction, they look at the 40% rise in prices of staple goods the last three years, or they want to know why their degrees are worthless, or why they owe $2 trillion in aggregate debt, or why uh, race is playing when the people are marrying between races, interracial Dating, marriage is, is at an all-time high. Why we're still trying to 
go back to neo-Confederate one-drop rules. And so they're confused and they're angry and they feel that prior generations did not hand them the ability to raise a family, buy a home, have children, have the American dream uh, when you're in your 20s. So what they feel is that they are living in the basement or they're not getting married, they're not having children, they're not buying a home, they're listless and they don't like it. And they want somebody to, to sometimes they want a cheap fix and just cancel my student loans or something like that. Other times they're more introspective and in saying the system is medieval. It's for the subsidized poor and the very wealthy, the professional upper, upper middle class and the millionaire class, but it's not for the middle class. And Donald Trump has, whatever people say about him, I keep using that qualifier because he can be very cruel and cruel. Uh, he's empathizing with them and he knows that. And he's a business person and he says, I can fix this for you. I can close the border so that the American citizen is privileged over the illegal alien. I can deregulate. I can deal with the administrative state so they do not go after you. I will be, I won't be isolationist. I will be Jacksonian. I will pick and choose my wars, but I will not have optional ground invasions that have indecisive results. Kill Soleimani, yes. Bomb the holy SHIT out of ISIS, yes. Uh, stare down North Korea, yes, but not go into an Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years or something. And that message is resonating with that class. Uh, to quote something from uh, your book, The Dying Citizen, uh, I'm encouraged by what you're saying, because um, my impression has been that many young people are, if you like, have some reason for concern. You know, the debts are being left, the difficulty yes. of getting into housing, all of those sorts of things. Uh, but they've been looking in the wrong places for the answers. They're looking to socialism rather than to what you might call responsible citizens. Yes. And you said citizenship, after all, is not an entitlement. It requires work. Yet too many citizens of republics, ancient and modern, come to believe that they deserve rights without assuming responsibilities and they don't worry how, why, or from whom they inherited their privileges. I think you're holding out the hope uh, that many young Americans, perhaps they've been shaped a bit by what's emerged about your elite universities in the context of anti-Semitism and uh, the leadership of those universities really revealing that they've lost the plot in a big way. Maybe there's a wake-up call working for the next generation. That'd be the best news of all. I think so. I think one thing that came out of October 7th, that it was a, a scab that was pulled off and there was a putrid wound of higher education. And we said to ourselves, why would anybody pay 85000 to go to Yale when 80% of the grades are, are A's? Why would anybody pay 90000 to go to Stanford when there are 9% white males who make up 37% of the population? Why would you go to any of these places who have gotten rid of the SAT scores and gotten rid of comparative ranking of high school grade point averages? So they look at all this and they say, why are we bringing in 300,000 Chinese students and 250,000 subsidized by oil money from the Middle East? Why are we doing this when middle-class kids do not have access to these wonderful institutions? And then more importantly, are they wonderful? because they are letting in students by their own admission 
and by their own standards that they made, not me, not you, they made just four or five years ago. They said that to come to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Vanderbilt, Michigan, Stanford, you have to have this SAT. You have to have this GPA. You have to be able to, to do this high caliber work. And now they're saying it was all a lie. You don't have to do it at all. We're not, it's meritocracy doesn't matter. We're going to let in people on the basis of their race or gender or sexual orientation. And the faculty are saying to them every day, you want me to inflate my grades? You want me to water down the content of the course? You want me to make new courses? Or do you want me to die on the altar of DEI and be blamed as a racist when I give people C's systematically? And so I'm not going to do it. So this is coming from the left. And Jewish Americans, who primarily 70% vote for Democratic candidates, have been worried about this. Uh, but there was this coalition that they thought they were a part of, of the Palestinians, Blacks, Latinos, gays, transgendered, because of the history of the Jewish people. And they found out that, in fact, they weren't a part of that. And they were caricatured in the most traditionally venomous anti-Semitic fashion, and they were open about it. What I think the big thing that shocked people on the campus, especially where I am, is they weren't so they weren't shy about it. October seventh happened. There was no there was no Israeli response till October twentieth. We had a professor or a lecturer or instructor at Stanford who said, I want all the Jews to get over there on that side of the room and I want you to leave all your computers over there and see how it feels to live under apartheid. Cornell, we had a professor that said, I'm exhilarated what I heard on October 7th. We had a person in UC Davis that said she wanted to follow Jewish students, how to make sure they follow them home. So they, they hadn't heard that before. And then when you saw the three presidents and just under oath, basically perjured themselves by saying, it's a matter of free speech and the, the First Amendment, or we would. And then people ask them under cross-examination, well, you denied this speaker, you wouldn't let this group protest, you, did, you, you don't have free speech. And so the result of it is that it could be very good because we have a lot of new universities that, are, that may be formed, they're talking about, and uh, admissions have gone down. Uh, there's a lot of people saying, do we really want 50% of that cohort, youth cohort to go to these places? because they're not learning mathematics and biology and philosophy and languages and history. They're learning sociology and therapeutic courses, and they'd be much better given the national shortage of highly skilled plumbers and framers and electricians. Why don't we have these a, a vigorous trade school? So I think the, all these things are gonna be good. And I can tell you as somebody on the Stanford campus, it has sent the fear of God into these universities. I could not believe it the other day on campus, they had issued a warning to the Gaza camp on the Stanford campus that has been there since October 7th, just staked out a whole area of the free speech and said, this is ours, and we're going to propagandize people who walk by and shout genocidal threats from the, from the river to the sea. And finally, Stanford said, you have 24 hours to get out, or we're going to take the names of people who violated school policy. And we'll see if they do it but they wouldn't even have conceived of that uh, a year ago. So I think there's some good coming out of it. And, you know, uh, a lot of philosophers, Milton Friedman included, modern but ancients as well, 
David Hume and, and others have said there's a lot of rot in a society, a, a Western capitalist society. They're so efficient that uh, they can they they can go on with a lot of rot without noticing it. And now I think we've had this rot in our higher education system and our administrative state. And now we've got to the point where people are saying, this is unsustainable. It just won't go on. We've got to stop it. And I, I, I think I'm optimistic about that. Well, it's all good news as long as people go looking for the right answers rather than the wrong answers. So that's a very that's an essential point. Yeah. I couldn't have, that. I think everybody should listen to what you just said because throughout history, when you had the the reign of terror, there was a chance for a Thermidorian response rather than the consulship that led to Napoleon. And Weimar, Weimar was very much like us, and yet they took the wrong corrective with Hitler. And same thing with, as you know, the Bolsheviks capitalized on a legitimate uh, constitutional monarchy substitution for the Tsar, and they hijacked that revolution. So what we do not want is somebody coming in on a horse saying, you know, democracy's flawed, no elections, I can put up, I can clean up this mess. The left, of course, says that every person on the conservative side who is seeking redress through parliamentary or democratic measures is a, a Hitler because they're paranoid that they have a, a rendezvous with reality. Yeah, well, we could talk about the left's understanding of who Hitler is, given that they don't seem to be able to differentiate between uh, Hamas and Nazism in a realistic way. Um, a, a note of encouragement. Um, we had some serious work done on who was tapping into these video podcasts at uh, the very sort that you and I are doing. And one of the things that's happened yes. since I started over five or six years ago, we were predominantly reaching older men in particular, but now we're reaching 25 up right across the same uh, sort of um, uh, age group. Uh, they're tapping in from 25 up in roughly the same sort of numbers as I understand it. So I'm greatly encouraged by that. So let's see whether we can uh, examine what would be good and bad options uh, a little more by talking about the presidential election. Um, going back to what Bill Gates had to say, plainly the world is now a very, very dangerous place. I've just written a piece uh, for one of our major newspapers here saying that um, we need to realise that the era where, you know, the unilateral uh, or uni polar order that the Americans have overseen for so long is now being stretched beyond belief and that America will need its allies. We're one of them. We need to step up. Don't start me on the pathetic leadership of our military. And, you know, Australia has a proud military history, but not now. We're, we're just, you know, sleepwalking through lotus land, as one former prime minister put it recently. Um, but in the face of all of this, and as we watch America, and as we're rightly concerned that as the leaders of the free world, we know we've got to step up, but to what extent can we rely on America, or will the isolationist tendencies that we hear about in the Republican Party, I could almost understand it in a way, they sort of say, oh, the world doesn't seem to appreciate us, a bit like eyesight, isn't it? When it's gone, we will. People should stop and think about that. But this isolationist sort of tendency, and then you've heard even the Wall Street Journal has said many Americans may hesitate to vote for uh, uh, Donald Trump now because of the way in which he's implied he'd resolve the Ukrainian problem in 24 hours, walk away from it. NATO hasn't done its bit. 
uh, a NATO nation that hasn't stepped up to 2%, he said, well, you know, I'd invite the Russians to do whatever they like to that country. How do we make sense of American desire to disengage, at least in, and where President Trump and the Republicans fit into that? Yeah, I think people abroad have to look at what's happening rather than what the left says is happening. And if you take the four years of Donald Trump and you take the three years of Joe Biden and you ask yourself just a, a number of basic questions, did NATO rearm more efficiently under Trump or under Biden? Did Putin go in under Trump or Biden? Did China talk about taking Taiwan more under Biden or Trump? Did China feel free to surveil the United States with balloons under Trump or Biden? Did Hamas attack under Biden or Trump? And go down the list. Did we end Afghanistan nobly under Trump or ignobly under Biden? And then ask yourself, so was the world more deterred? It doesn't really matter whether America fights wars or not. In fact, often when you fight some wars, it, it as you know well, it, it destroys deterrence because you lose them as we happened in Afghanistan. Being in Afghanistan and the way we got out destroyed deterrence. So the question is, if you look at what Donald Trump did, was he an isolationist? Did he say... Okay, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Mr. Kim Jong-un is Australia. He's your problem. He's not our problem. No, he didn't. Did he say to the Middle East, ISIS came out, I don't know, maybe we caused it, I don't care, but I'm not getting involved. No, he said, I'll bomb this, and he did. And he took off every, almost everything off the target restriction list that had existed under Obama. Obama, Obama said they were JVs, no problem. He got them. And then for 10 years, we've told we've been told that Qasem Soleimani was the catalyst for Iranian terror, but he was untouchable. He was untouchable for two reasons. The Europeans said he was sacrosanct and he never knew where he was. Trump killed him and he just killed him. And I could go on. And they said the Wagner, you cannot attack the Wagner group because the Wagner group is an extension. It's sort of uh, Putin's Praetorian Guard. And they told Trump, these people are provoking us in Syria. And he said, kill them. We killed 200 Russians. No one talks about that and wiped them out in Syria. So he was Jacksonian. And I don't know how you how one would characterize that, but his attitude was not necessarily preemptive. He just said, these are the problems that face the Western world. And when they get to a point that they're pressing us on deterrence, I'm going to remind them that what they're doing is stupid. And it worked. And it's not me saying this. Again, I get back to that saying of Jack, uh, Jake Sullivan when he said, there's nothing going on in the Middle East. It's boring. It's calm. It was, uh, you know. Mm. Yep. But, but And then they inherited it. And, you know, if you take the Houthis off the terrorist list and you give Iran, Iran about an $80 billion blank check of new oil revenues, and you beg them to get in the Iran deal, and you try to pressure Hezbollah to give up, uh, Israel to give up oil rights and gas rights uh, to Hezbollah in Lebanon, and then you get out of Afghanistan the way you did, and then you tell Putin that if he's going to hack, keep off the hospitals, 
then you you've destroyed deterrence. And I don't know how that fits into the traditional activist isolationist. But Trump is not an isolationist. He's a punitive Jacksonian. And he feels that from one, every now and then somebody has to be taken on for the benefit of the United States and the Western world. And he gets angry when people criticize him. Yes, he gets angry when the alliance, he's very angry at the alliance of NATO because he feels that there's 450 million people in Europe. They have a larger, NATO and EU together have a larger GDP than we do. If you put them both together, and yet they will not spend 2% of their GDP on arms. And they expect the United States to contribute 70% of their defense needs. And if you question that, then you're an isolationist. So what that does to him is then he gets into his Trump annex. You know, I told him, I hope you, you know, Russia does that. But if you just cut out the rhetoric and you look what he actually did, uh, Putin did not threaten Europe during his tenure and they did spend a lot more in defense. And that came in very handy. Uh, very handy when Ukraine uh, came up because some of the Europeans were able to help Ukraine with supplies that they wouldn't have other had otherwise had they not started to ramp up. So I, I don't think he's an isolationist. He's a Jacksonian nationalist, but I think he's a nationalist that even supersedes his American interest. To drill into this one just a little bit more, I recently found myself in a round table with some pretty senior people uh, involved in defense from Britain, Australia, uh, and the UK. And the American attitude that came through to some extent was, look, you Europeans, that, that was more addressed to the Brits than to the Australians in that context, you know, you haven't pulled your weight. Um, you really need to get on with uh, doing more uh, to uh, help the Ukrainians. We Americans have spent a lot of money, probably defence on the cheap in a way, but leave that aside. Um, uh, by which I mean, uh, sorry, I should elaborate there. In a way, uh, you know, taking on a, a serious foe like Amer Russia, you'll never do it cheaper than through supporting the Ukrainians, is what's meant by that view. Uh, but um, the ex views expressed by the Brits and by the Australians was more, please, America, understand that Beijing is watching to see whether we have the willpower to stay the course with Ukraine, because that will influence their thinking about whether they can safely do something on Taiwan. Yes. Now, you will have heard that debate important. played out, and I'd just be interested in your, your, your views on it. Well, I can't speak for the Trump people, but I, have, I know some of them, and I read what they've said. I've talked to some of them, and I think their position is the following, if I could extrapolate, or maybe it's impressionistic. They feel that Russia, with 30 times the territory, 10 times the GDP, three and a half times the population, is going to wear down Ukraine. And it's become a Verdun or the Somme. And to win, you would have to arm Ukraine. And traditional military strategy would say that they have to preempt. They have to go into Russia and bomb supply depots on the border, uh, bases, oil insulations, if they want to win. And to do that against a nuclear power like Russia can, and under Putin would be very dangerous for the world in general. So then they say, what is the plan? 
is the plan to have a, a four-year, three-year, five-year psalm. 25% of the population of Ukraine is left. And so is there a mechanism to deter Putin and stop the war? And that's what they're searching for. And I think what they kind of said is something along the following. The larger that NATO gets, the more vulnerable it gets because it has exposures where people in NATO will not flock to go. So if they if they were in NATO, somebody having cappuccino in Florence is not going to run over to Ukraine and spite Russians. And that's what they're worried about. So what they have said is, let us arm Ukraine to the teeth and Trump did give them offensive weapons in a way that Obama didn't dare. And Biden held that himself when he came in for a while. And let them be armed, but not put them in NATO. And then number two, there is credibility on the Donbass and Crimea in the sense that no American president, once Obama gave them up by not doing anything, has said it is the it is the strategy or the policy of the United States and its allies to make sure in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, 2020, 21, 22, to get back Crimea by force of arms and Donbass to their rightful owners. No one said that. Not Obama, not Trump, not Biden. They have said that now. And so a lot of the Trump people say the following. If we could negotiate the future of the disputed Donbass and Crimea that have 70% Russian-speaking people, I have a feeling, my own feeling is they don't want to go with Russia, but who knows? And there would be some way to adjudicate that. Or Putin, if he incorporated them, he would. we would be no worse off than he did before. Then the question is, well, would you reward him? Well, he's already had them since 2014. And he could say to his people, I, I lost 600,000 dead, wounded, and missing because I got an institutionalization of what I stole. Okay, but I, they're not in NATO. And then Ukraine could say, we're going to get him back to where he was on February 24th of 2022, and we're going to be armed. And I think that's what their position, something like that is. And I don't quite see that's it's not surrendering or ukraine it's giving them enough weapons to protect themselves but a lot of the anger of the ukraine war is the priorities of the people that are advocating it and they're advocating things like we have to sink the black sea fleet we have to go in and hit russian supplies and there's no consequence they never say well russia will do this or that and they said no 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 they won't they'll never do that We've had about 11 people, as you know, in the Russian parliament, and I wrote about it in the end of everything, that have advocated using tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, and that, that's been dismissed as completely a, 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 a joke. I'm not sure that it is. And, you know, there's this asymmetry here in the United States. We, we hear that Israel must be proportionate. It cannot act disproportionately. And yet disproportionality, as you know, John, is the only way to win a war. And yet we're told that Ukraine must be disproportionate. They just can't tit for tat. They've got to go in there. We're told that Israel must text people, they must drop leaflets, and they must avoid civilian casualties. That's a good thing. 
Nobody ever tells Zelensky, hey, when you go in and attack with your drones and missiles, Russian sites, make sure you text all of the civilians in Crimea the Donbass. They don't do that, much less do they do it when they send a drone into to Russia. They don't do that. And they say to no one would ever say to Mr. Netanyahu, if it gets tough, you can suspend elections and declare martial law. You just have to do it. But we take that as an obvious thing with Ukraine. So the Trump people look at this and they say, why don't you just apply the same standards unless you think that what Hamas did on October 7th is not uh, a, doesn't give them the right that what Putin did to Kiev. But maybe they do believe that. I don't know. But they're saying, why don't you just apply the same standards to both wars? And yet we have people on the left that want to go to war with Russia over Ukraine, but they also want to stop the IDF from punishing the killers, the the machine that killed people on October 7th. So, and all of that gets messed up into the, the nomenclature of isolationist or realist or something. But I just look at the period of 2017 to 2021, and I know that Trump said some crazy things and seemed isolationist, but when I actually look what he did, the world was so much safer with Iran, Iran was in its box, the Houthis were in its box, Hamas within their box. Uh, Putin didn't dare go in there. South Korea, North Korea was not uh, doing what they're doing now. And when I talk to people that come to the Hoover, or when I travel from those countries, they tell me that they don't want to be quoted, they don't want to discuss Donald Trump, but they felt much safer when he was president than Joe Biden. That's a profound remark. Um, as we look at this mess and go back again to, to, to Gates's comment about coherence, American coherence, it seems to me, is dependent upon, uh, to some extent, the winding back of the white anting from within, if I can put it that way. I think that's true of every Western culture. I'm not picking America out. But one of the things that you said that struck me in your most recent, in, again, in The Dying Citizen was that states must privilege citizens over mere residents. Citizens must live within established borders, share, sharing a sacred physical space. And that just raises the issue of um, why boundaries, borders are so foundational to the social and economic and cultural health not just of the nation, uh, but of its citizens. I mean, estimates are that somewhere between two and a half to eight million illegal aliens have entered the US under Biden's administration. We were talking about the Vice President, Kamala Harris. I understand that was one of her responsibilities. And yet, from, for some incredible length of time, she didn't even go and visit the border, as I understand it. But I'd just be interested in your views on how important that will be in an election year. And in particular, what level of alarm we should have about who might be sneaking through that process. I mean, who's spies? Who's activists? It's a very good point. And that was not an issue under Trump, even though that he was stopped in the courts, he was stopped in the Democratic Congress from executive orders that would have built a wall or stop catch and release or made people apply for refugee status in their home country. Uh, constantly, they wouldn't let him do it. He finally did it. And he stopped it in 2020. And the, the problem is that there's two problems with it, three problems. Financially, it's destroying the budgets of these cities. They cannot have, and communities, eight million people or eight, eight San Francisco's we've had 
basically, greater San Francisco. It's just we, we don't have the wherewithal to handle it. Number two is we have no way of auditing anybody. So two days ago, it was announced that somebody came in and he was an Iraqi who wanted to kill George W. Bush. And they, they've known about it, and they arrested him. And he was smuggling other Iraqis in to kill him. We we have sec we're in my community, we've had three sexual predators that have come in. So there's nobody has any idea who these people are, except uh many of them are encouraged to immigrate from Venezuela, Central America, and Mexico precisely because they the countries don't want them to come in their country. They want them to come here. It's kind of a, a, a way of immigration warfare against the United States. The third thing is the asymmetry. So Americans ask themselves, if you're a black American and you have social service needs and you have a, a, a civic center in New York, why are you giving that over to illegal aliens that have broke the law by coming and residing? Or why, when they told all Americans, you must have something called a real ID, that means that your driver's license will not get you on a plane next year. You must have a passport or a birth certificate, a proof of residence, and a driver's license. And then they're letting people get on planes with no ID who are legal aliens, and they're flying them all around the country. And so if you're in the military, we expelled 8,400 of our best soldiers because they, they were young people. They said there's no danger uh, of COVID. Many of them, the majority of them had COVID with natural immunity. And now we're letting in 8 million people, two and a half million came in during COVID in 2021 when we were still under initial lockdown. And there was no requirement at all that they have background health checks, vaccination records. So it was the, it was the sheer and I said that in The Dying Citizen, that we were getting to the point in the West where we privileged the illegal alien over the citizen. And that's not sustainable. And if you don't have a border, then your responsibilities become global. You have to take care of everybody. And you're not modest in saying we can handle between Canada and Mexico, we can create a very unique culture, but we have no ability to bring in sizable populations without, you know, legality, English, high school diploma, diversity of the from the places they come. And so it's been an ungodly disaster. It shares a wider pathology with you in Australia, with people in Canada, with people in Europe that have these people within our societies that either because they're globalists and they feel that borders are a 19th century construct and shouldn't exist, that we're an ecumenical world community, that it's okay, or more pernicious, they feel that the Western heritage in Europe, in the United States, on the frontier, Australia, is nothing to be proud of. In fact, it's a shame. We're neo-colonialists, enslavers, etc., imperialists, and therefore we owe it for people of the non-West to let in without any appreciation of the hardship and sacrifice and courage it took from all of our ancestors that we have to settle the Western United States, to go into a godforsaken natural terrain like Australia and to create that beautiful civilization out of nothing, and yet to try to make people feel guilty about that wonderful achievement by leveraging or blackmailing to let people into the country that are not audited. And so, and the final thing, it's absurd. 
here in the United States, we ask ourselves, when we look at Europe and Australia and we look in the mirror, we say, it's a disconnect. The, the As soon as these people come in, they, they have claims against us. They're told by our left that they have affirmative action prerogatives, that we're, we're racist. But if it's so bad, why would they want to come? And nobody can answer that question. When you ask the immigrants, why do you want to come? I want to come because I have no freedom. I, I have no economic future. Well, why would you have an economic future in Australia or Britain or the United States and not in Venezuela or Ghana or Haiti? And the answer is self-evident. And yet we can't, as a Western culture, say that. We don't have anything to be guilty about. We did far better than the alternative. We do not have to be perfect to be good. And if without a border and a unique civilization and people who will assimilate into it gradually, legally, and willfully, we're not going to have a country that it's that that's the pathology of Western civilization right now. And I don't know what to do about it, but it's borders are a symptom of that. And I think it's now the one the a recent poll said that was the one issue that people were most worried about in the 2024 election. I take your point. I mean, here we find in Australia, we literally have in our own midst people who hate us and people who fail to understand to pick up again what you're talking about there, that in fact, if they destroy, it's, a, it's an argument for a, a right and proper nationalism, I think. If you destroy the countries that are beacons of freedom and prosperity, not only will that destroy the, the countries that you're seeking to bring down, you lose that opportunity to spread democracy and to lift other countries okay. up and to police decent order and to try and maintain, for example, the trade uh, routes that are, you know, really the Americans more than anybody else have kept open. That's helped us lift countless millions, billions of people out of poverty. If you break all that down, you drive people back into short, nasty, brutish lives, not just in the countries that are being white-handed, but in the countries that have advanced under the insistence on some law and order from the Western democracies. I just talked to a, an immigrant in the grocery store yesterday and I asked him, why are you here? We were talking in line. He said, I didn't, he didn't answer the question. He, he spoke broken English. My Spanish is not all that bad. We could communicate. And he said, I didn't come here to come to another Mexico. That's what he said. Said, I'm a proud Mexican, but I didn't come north to come to Mexico. And I said, you came for its opposite, its antithesis. And why is it antithetical? That's the question that we don't have the confidence to answer. It's not a racial question. It's one of culture and law and history, customs and traditions of a unique West that was multiracial. So that until the West gets its confidence back and says that you can call us any name in the book and it has no effect on us because we know what we did, and it was better than not better than worse, and we're very proud of it. And we don't, we're not going to fall in the trap that you're going to make us be perfect before we can be good. And look at yourself in the comparison. Until we get to that frame of mind, we're going to be in. Because I think our conversation today, John, kind of revolves around that central question. All these issues are really a crisis of confidence in Western culture, and the inability or the fear to articulate what we inherited from better generations, what we stand for, and we're going to be proud to defend that at any cost, and we don't have to apologize to anybody. And yet, and we know that's true because people, I don't, 
I never read about people in Australia that are dying to go to Indonesia or New Guinea. I haven't heard it yet. Maybe they are, but uh, they're not trying to get into China. But it seems that everybody in your area of the world wants to get to Australia. And there must be a reason for that. These people are not stupid. They want to get to your country because they feel that you've got the rule of law and you've got an independent judiciary. You you honor private property. You have a capitalist economy. You have a cons constitutional government. You protect freedom of expression and religion. And they don't have that in their own country. And they want it. But they're, they're very capable of destroying what you have if they come in numbers and are told that they have grievances against you and they won't not assimilate or intermarry or integrate. So they have, it has to be measured, legal. People have to come with some skills, the English language, et cetera. Until we get back to that, it's going to be – the euphemism would be problematic, but it's going to be a, a continuing disaster. Victor, you've been very generous again. Thank you very much for helping us Thank to you. see so clearly so much more. Thank you, John, for having me again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.